Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out all of my written reviews there anytime at Quipster.net, covering all eras of film at Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. Today we're going to be kicking off a three-part series of films of the 1980s in which a plant or vegetation becomes a part of the main action. Probably the main star, if you want to say that. The first film I'm going to be covering in this makeshift trilogy is one of the most well-known of the films of the 1980s, at least musical-wise, 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. Of course, you would imply from the title there's a horror element to it. There's some sci-fi element to it as well. And primarily, it is a musical comedy. It's a PG-13 rated film. It does have mature thematic material that does include comic horror violence, some substance abuse, language, and sexual references. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes, at least that's the theatrical release anyway. The director's cut runs about 20 minutes longer. I'll get into some of the differences there in just a moment. Rick Moranis is the main star. Ellen Green and Vincent Gardina get sizable supporting roles. Smaller roles go to Steve Martin. Levi Stubbs of the soul group, The Four Tops, provides the voice of Audrey Two, which I'll also get into in the moment. Bill Murray, Tisha Campbell Martin, John Candy, Christopher Guest have very small roles within the film. Jim Belushi and Paul Dooley play the same character, but Jim Belushi appears in the theatrical version. Paul Dooley in the director's cut. Dooley was not available when they did some reshoots and Jim Belushi stepped in. Frank Oz is the director and the screenplay is Howard Ashman and it's based on his stage musical. Now that stage musical was also called Little Shop of Horrors and it played off-Broadway in 1982. It actually was off-off-Broadway and then just appeared as off-Broadway. It's a distinction that I think few people outside of theater fans really understand uh, music here from Alan Menken, and the lyrics are by Howard Ashman. That is a duo that should sound familiar to you. If you know Disney films, certainly. Stage play was produced by David Geffen, and he also produced this film, which itself was based on a movie, a little-known Roger Corman film from 1960 of the same name that featured the screen debut of Jack Nicholson in a supporting role. I think that's the most notable thing about that film was filmed in less than a week and generally not considered a good film except for Roger Corman buffs. As far as the 1986 version and as well as the stage musical, it's more of a loving send-up of not only of that film but also of two very popular genres of the 1950s and 1960s, the romantic musical and those weird sci-fi alien invasion films. Rick Moranis is a star. He's very likable. He plays this nerdy and shy flower shop assistant named Seymour Krellborn. The shop he works at is smack dab in the middle of Skid Row. It's struggling, at least until Seymour buys an eye-catching exotic plant from a Chinese street seller, and then he places it in the window in order to hopefully bring in more business. The plant that Seymour dubs Audrey Two in honor of Seymour's crush on this ditzy local lady friend named Audrey, who's played by Ellen Green, and she's really the only carryover from the stage play. She appeared in that role in the original show, off-Broadway, and also in London. And Audrey 2 turns out to be a success. Business soon booms, bringing in people who want to see a little bit more of the plant. Curiously, nobody really wants to buy the plant. They end up buying everything else. However, soon enough, the plant starts to begin to grow ill. Seymour then discovers that the only way to restore Audrey 2 back to health is to feed her 
fresh human blood. Unfortunately, the ever-growing Audrey II, who soon becomes a sentient being that learns to talk, Audrey II needs much more than Seymour is able to provide from his own body in terms of blood. And so a Faustian bargain emerges of continued fame and success in exchange for ample, fresh supply of the red stuff. Now, Frank Oz is directing here one of his first directorial efforts and the first one outside of a Jim Henson production. He does give the film a certain Muppet pedigree, I suppose, even though it's not a Muppet film. He's an appropriate choice given that the movie might live or die based on how convincing the puppet work for Audrey 2 comes across. And though the subject matter does run quite dark, Oz does manage to keep things fairly light and frothy most of the way with up-tempo tunes, comedic character actors who know how to play their parts for maintaining the silly tone underneath. Now, this being a stage play, there aren't really a great deal of changes of scenery, but Frank Oz and company do a pretty good job in trying to make the city feel more expansive than just this flower shop and a dental office. The dinginess of the streets of Skid Row also makes for a pretty good contrast with the scenes that involve Audrey, the human woman, dreaming of somewhere that's green. That's one of the musical numbers, her ideal life with Seymour, living in idyllic suburbia full of Tupperware parties and a freshly mowed lawn and watching innocuous fair on TV with Seymour and the kids. Although the cast is full of comedic stars, the main enduring attraction of Little Shop of Horrors comes from the satirical musical numbers from Ashman and Mankin. They cover a wide array of musical styles from the 50s and 60s, Motown-style R&B, doo-wop, teen pop, rock and roll, albeit sometimes it gets occasionally anachronistic in the case of the funkier Audrey 2, the Oscar-nominated song Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. That's a new Ashman and Macon song that was not originally in the stage musical. It took five weeks to film that sequence. It feels a little bit more from the 70s. And for those of you wondering, it would lose the Oscar to Berlin's Take My Breath Away from Top Gun that year. Some musicals use their songs to drive a mood or maybe simply to entertain audiences. But in this film, they these songs propel the narrative and they deliver a good dose of the humor. And that makes those songs just as critical to listen to the lyrics as the traditional dialogue. Of course, those of you who know the names Ashman and Mankin would probably know them more because of the success that they would have later on in Disney films. A few years later, they wrote songs for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. There are a lot of memorable scenes in this film. They include the scene stealing Steve Martin. He plays this abusive dentist named Oren Scrivello. He channels Elvis for a number called Dentist, naturally, in which he performs all manner of sadistic acts on his patients in his dental office. Bill Murray being one of those patients, he has great fun ad-libbing his comedic take on a masochist looking for Oren to actually hurt him. By the way, that role was not in the stage play. It was a role that was played by Jack Nicholson in the Roger Corman original. Bill Murray didn't even have any lines to say, but he ended up ad-libbing a lot of the jokes that appear in the film anyway. The use of Supremes-esque soul trio of singers who appear on the screen from time to time is not only good for keeping this fairly dour story a little bit more upbeat, but they also serve in the ancient tradition of plays and using them as the chorus, the conscientious observers of the story. It's pretty commendable here also that the characters are cast for their comedic chops and their screen presence more so than their vocal range, and that's one of the differences between what you can do on the stage versus what is acceptable to show on the big screen. 
Ellen Green's reprisal of her role it was not really what the producers originally wanted when they were casting it. They cycled through a lot of ideas in order to bring in more well-known musical acts. Cindy Lauper was a notable one. Barbara Streisand, another. Both of them ended up turning down the film. There's even some rumors that they were mulling over whether they should approach Madonna. But they ended up going with Green, and I think it worked out pretty well. Along these lines, the initially reluctant Frank Oz, he didn't necessarily want to do this film. And then when he got to thinking about it, he decided that there was actually something he could do with it. He wasn't the first choice for a director either. Martin Scorsese, in what would have been a Steven Spielberg-produced effort, originally wanted to make this uh, 3D B-movie, a very low-budget one, uh, as this kind of homage to the old films of the 50s and 60s that were very similar John Landis had also been attached for a spell, but that fell through. But Oz does a pretty good job here, showing some of that talent in not only his puppet work, but also for comedy. He made a lot of great comedies in the 1980s and into the 90s as well. I think the most kudos you can ascribe to the film goes to the production design, especially in capturing the rich detail of the outdoor urban environs of downtown. It's done entirely on set within Pinewood Studios, the legendary Pinewood Studios. They utilize seemingly every facet of that facility in order to make this really come to life. However, it's the main plant itself, Audrey 2, that merits the most amount of lavish praise. Uh, Lyle Conway designed Audrey 2, and it's very interesting to note that this was really Conway's only such credit. Astonishingly, because he would receive an Oscar nod for his work here, you would think that that would have enabled him to do a lot more films of a similar vein, especially in the way that he gets Audrey 2 to move and shimmy and shake and talk with full freedom of movement in ways that will have you wondering with mouth agape at how it was done so fluidly. You know, there were several different models of Audrey of various sizes. Some of them required up to dozens of skilled technicians to control. They ended up shooting at slower speeds, slower film speeds, like 12 frames per second. Obviously, 24 frames per second is what you'll see in the cinema. So they shot it at between 12 and 16 frames per second and ended up speeding up the action later. And it, they actually pulled it off convincingly when they ran it in normal motion. The actors had to actually do some slow motion lip sync. And then they added the vocals later. And they're all crafted with impeccable skill. As far as the heavies in the film, there really isn't anything like Audrey 2, I think, in cinema history. And that makes uh, an already offbeat musical feel completely unique so more credit there for the film the theatrical version of the film and this is where we're going to get into some of the discussion as far as the differences between what was originally intended and what ended up appearing on the screen the theatrical version of the film the one that was released into theaters features a much more upbeat ending than the bleak one that appeared in the stage musical was not the original ending that was shot for this film though the problem is that unlike the stage play in which a very distant at least depending on where you're sitting you know, Seymour and all of the other actors are very distant to you. The character of Seymour was considered a weak loser. He committed some reprehensible acts to further his own ends. In the stage play, you didn't necessarily have to feel as sorry for him. But viewers of this film, seeing Rick Moranis up close in the role, really actually liked Rick Moranis in the role. They identified with him. And seeing him close up and seeing his emotions and he's full of conflict... You end up rooting him on as the hero of the film, so you're invested in what Rick Moranis is doing. Preview audiences who saw the first cut of this film greatly disliked the one that was shot. At great expense, no less. It, it offered no upbeat resolution to the story or the characters that the story had been building upon. Contrasting this, fans of the play and maybe those who just disliked tacked-on happy endings 
maybe a little bit more chagrined at the abrupt way the theatrical ending resolves, but there's not much doubt that more people seem to prefer the theatrical ending than they do the one that Oz originally wanted to go with. And now that there's a director's cut release, there is a choice for those people depending on what you really want out of the film. Now with this new reshot, happier ending, Little Shop of Horrors did fare relatively well at the box office. It raked in $38 million on a reported $25 million budget. Now some of that budget, about $5 million or so reportedly, was expended on the ending that they didn't even use. It lingered in the top 10 at the U.S. box office for nearly two months against a crowded holiday 1986 slate dominated by other movies like Red Hot Eddie Murphy's The Golden Child, popular feel-good sci-fi comedy in Star Trek for The Voyage Home, and the surprising legs of another comedy at the time, Paul Hogan's Crocodile Dundee. They all pretty much dominated the top three slots during Little Shop of Horror's initial run. Word of mouth would have likely killed the film earlier than those two months in the theaters had they gone with the ending as they intended, but that ending's elusive nature made the reputation of the director's cut grow in the minds of the film's fans. They ended up distributing this black and white VHS quality work print footage of it around the internet long before it was finally released in all its glory by Warner Brothers on home video in 2012. That black and white footage was also released on DVD briefly before David Geffen decided to pull it, really making the ones that were on the shelf and, and scooped up a collector's item for some people. Now, as far as the differences between the two endings, on a personal note, I did watch this film with my wife and my daughter, the director's cut, I should say. It was their real first time experiencing the film, my daughter's anyway, and my daughter pretty much hated where the film went. I ended up showing them the clips of the theatrically released ending. They said they preferred it much more than the theatrical cut. As for me, regardless of the ending, I'm a fan of the talent that's on board and of the musical pieces and either ending. I do find Little Shop of Horrors to be a bit uneven regardless of the ending in the overall tone. I don't really find a good deal of the humor to be actually funny. That's my personal take. Other people's mileage is going to certainly vary there. Some people probably think this is gloriously funny all the time. I'm more interested in seeing this story as a metaphor for the overwhelming power of addiction. I feel like there's a lot of themes of being an addict and, and trying to continuously feed your hunger for more and more of that which ends up killing you. Audrey too here representing the need for Seymour to feed that addiction until he loses everything that he holds dear. And from that point of view, the original ending to the play and of the movie that Frank Oz intended works far better for that theme, even though it ends up becoming overwhelmingly grim. But regardless of all of that, you can now experience the film both ways. Both are enjoyable on their own terms, and you can make the choice as to which ending that you actually prefer. Maybe it works better for most audiences if you're experiencing the theatrical version for the first time, and then you end up watching the intended 23-minute finale from a historical or curiosity perspective instead of just watching the director's cut alone. Maybe the film won't work as well for you just watching the director's cut cold because you're conditioned to want happy endings and expect happy endings, especially if you're invested in the characters. But the director's cut has its champions who would probably steer you the other way. Although the film is a bit uneven, I find in many spots, I do think that there's enough ingenuity, some very quality camp, good solid songs, very fun performances, and a lot of great production work to give Little Shop of Horrors an easy recommendation for those who are looking for a zany, satirical, sometimes even surprisingly affecting musical oddity. 
So I will recommend Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. I'm going to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it's recommended for those people who like this kind of movie. If you like really dark comedies, if you like these stars, and if you like musicals and, and basically really offbeat satires, I think you're going to end up really enjoying the movie. If you like more traditional stuff, maybe this is not going to be as much of your bag. I would say maybe 25 or 30% of people who view the director's cut as their first experience are going to like the film much more so than the theatrical version which i probably would guess about 80 or 90 percent will like if you have a different experience with little shop of horrors that you want to impart you can find my contact information at my website go to quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net as far as what i'm going to be covering next week i'm going to be re reviewing the film swamp thing from 1982 swamp thing based on the dc comics title so i haven't seen that film since I was a teenager, I remember disliking it then, but the film has its champion, so I will be reassessing that film for next week. Swamp Thing, so check that out if you haven't seen it already, and you'll hear my review for it on the next episode. Before I go, I just want to mention that I also cover new films that are out in theaters on another podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. I do encourage you to do a search for that wherever you're listening to this right now, and until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. I come to you, I come to you.